Well, hello and welcome to the 12th episode of the Pyragogy in Action podcast called title is Opening Education. So we're going to be talking about open source education with Peter Shuki in the UK and David Preston if he solves technical issues in uh, California. So if you're wondering what the Pyragogy project is about, this is our 10th anniversary and we've been collaborating to build what we call the No Longer Missing Guide to all things relevant to successful peer learning and peer production. And we like to um, remind people that we didn't invent pyragogy. It's been happening since the beginning of time and, and maybe before. Um, but through this podcast, called Pyragogy in Action, we aim to provide an interactive space where participants and audience can explore the philosophies, uh, the concepts, contributors, and practical applications of pyragogy. And we aim to keep these discussions for informal and free-flowing within some minimal guidelines. We generally uh, work around two to three topping, or talking points or topics. We live stream via video, live video to the Pyragogy channels on YouTube, LinkedIn, and Facebook. And we'd like you to consider subscribing on your favorite podcast apps. So that's just any podcast app, literally. I think we're on all of them. And you can find the links to all those at piercepress.com slash Pyragogy in action. So there's, you know, piercepress.com slash podcasts is the easiest place to find them. And several dozen archived recordings uh, reside on our YouTube channel. We've been doing it, like I said, since 2012. And please consider subscribing and participating in future live streams. It makes it more interesting for us. And with that said, I'd like to go back to introducing our guests and I'll turn it over to Joe Corneli. Um, Hello. Hi, um, Joe. Yeah, so in fact, uh, Charlotte is gonna join us as a, as a guest uh, representing the Pure Gaiji Project. We would be joined by David Preston, but yeah, he seems to not be online today, but we can try to uh, uh, fill his shoes as well as we can, because <laughs> um, we do know him. He's contributed to the Pure Gaiji Handbook. Um, Peter Shuki is our uh, guest, and it'd really be great just to hear a bit more about him, um, but to introduce his background and why we reached out to him. We came to know of his work through uh, on and through and with community open online courses. Um, and yeah, Peter, if you'd like to just introduce yourself to the audience and a bit to us as well, uh, we can get to know you. Hi, uh, yeah, I'm Peter Shuki. I'm a lecturer in uh higher education in a college-based uh, university centre in East Lancashire, which is in the northwest of England. It's between Liverpool and Manchester, I guess. It's, it's a little bit north of Manchester, toward the east. And uh, the, I think the, the, the first time I got involved with pedagogy, I can't remember when that was now, but it was quite a way. I mean, it was 10 years. It must have been getting on for 10 years at the beginning time. And uh, <laughs> I would... Uh, I would wrangle for people who that fully were, but he interviewed me about Cooks when Cooks was a, a project that I designed. It later became a PhD thesis and project. But um, Cooks was running at the time as a community open online courses project, and it was a direct response to MOOCs and massive open online courses. Um, and I felt at the time that it fitted 
very much between um, the kooks, the ex. I, I don't know if these terms still get used as much as they once did, but the connectivist MOOC. So the idea that this was like a, an egalitarian space there where we were going to learn and create new ecologies of learning. And then the and the ex MOOC, which seem to really dominate now, and they're the blue chip uh, institutional based MOOCs. Both of them were massive and both of them focused on the massive. And I thought there's such a missing space here that is um, community. <laughs> How do people that need to use technology that are actually cut off from those other spaces that have through resource, through economics, through culture, through location, uh, in terms of geographic location or societal location, they really do need to be part of this and they're a threat to be, you know, th those small micro communities are in threat or under threat of being isolated again right at the beginning of something when actually we can do things to make that happen and to be part of something new smaller spaces but with not massive community not massive that was their phrase at the beginning everybody can teach and everybody can learn for free that was the the other mantra for it yeah is that is that enough joe to start that's, that's certainly enough to get us started thank you so much that's great i love the yeah, community not massive and i think uh yeah, had we had uh, David here, we would have got his introduction. But David has worked on something which I think will be a theme that we can kind of discuss in the absence, in his absence, uh, unless he shows up. Of uh, open source learning. So, you know, how do you share? How do you share the methods and ideas that you've been developing? I think that's kind of one one uh, notion of open source. I guess in the Puregaji project, also we've been trying to make, as Charlotte was saying in our intro, a guide. So. Uh, just ask another follow-up question about your intro really is um you know mm -hmm. are you now the uh the owner and proprietor of this uh kooks uh website and if someone else wanted to run a uh, kook say we wanted to run one how would we do it would we approach you would we ask uh would we look on the website and see okay i click this and click that and i can do it myself here or do you have something else where someone can download that and go off and run it in their own in their own time on their own platform how does that work yeah okay good questions um Coops, it's 10 years old now um and the idea of the the well actually it's, it's older than 10 years initially what we wanted to have is a platform that people could go on wherever they were and create courses and and that happened you know I, within the first three years we, we went we thought we'd be quite small and it'd be in the northwest of england and we had 1500 users within the first three years which is a massive i know in technology terms and in network terms but people were creating courses in pretty diverse locations on every continent now what happened was over a period of time we noticed lots of people created courses and then left them and they were abandoned and there was a real um ethical dilemma do we just shut them down or do we do we maintain them because people are taking the time to produce them but they haven't been back and sometimes they haven't been back for years so in the last 12 months it's a a sentient time for us in this period now we've shifted we've got we're going to move it now you can still go on you can still create courses but at the point that we're at now our focus is not to make it all things to all people but to to work with organizations and help them create the kooks so the mm. ones that have worked really well have had existing organizations not organizations necessarily but a community so a community mm -hmm. come together and use the kooks so the idea that we kind of began with and that was part of the investigation is will people create courses just as an individual in the hope that other people will come and join mm. and and that happened but only in tiny ways 
Mm. And I think what happens is there's a whole thing behind course creation that we're not aware of. So somebody may be an expert. We had artists do this, um, a really beautiful one from, uh, I won't give the name of the creator, but a really beautiful one about making the invisible. Um, and it was an art thing. So it said, and it was part of the project that they were working on and they put it out there for other people to come. So the knowledge was there, the expertise was there, but what was missing was how do you create a community online? How do you go and find those other people? They don't just happen and stumble across. It's not a mm. high street where the people mm -hmm. in a town will go past that building. It's a you know, it's a website, it's a web address. There's absolutely nothing that there is no way you would encounter this unless somebody comes and finds you so there was that issue and i think that's where we're at i don't think people are going to stumble across these things so we work with the groups first to make course mm -hmm. but if somebody was listening to this now and wanted to make a kook and could they yes they could we might have mm -hmm. a couple of issues right at this moment mm -hmm. because we're, we're switching from one domain to another we're not a domain we've got the same web addresses but we're being hosted somewhere differently and the background is, is WordPress and Moodle. And um, so they are attached to each other. But it might be a couple of days. I'm hoping that it would be less than that, actually, that they be, they'll be free. But the goal is people can go up and create. Peter, yeah. I had a question about, yeah, like, can the or can a, like a group say, I'm just, I'm just thinking of like a bunch of organizations that I'm involved in, mostly nonprofits. Um, could they use that platform to like improve community interactions in their own community and not just like, or is it just something to go and learn a, a subject? Do, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And the former, I would say, it, we, we can't compete with why would, I think it's got to be this, the, the former, it's got to be small micro communities and organizations that want to teach each other something at a given time. So it's temporal, it's local, perhaps, but I don't mean local in this term, geographic. Mm -hmm. But it's local in that all the people have got an interest at a given time. Mm -hmm. But it's not necessarily if you, a great course. I don't know if Kay Sidebottom's come out, but Kay created um, a great course for post-humanism, which is a, it's a flourishing thing, and there's lots of places you can go and learn it. There are university courses you can go and develop it but she created something that ran in a temporal space that invented a particular group of people to look at it in a particular way and that was a fabulous course mm -hmm. i think it's one of my favorite ones because it it's what these things are it created itself well it created it from a spark and people came together then it dies away and what precludes us doing that in terms of uh, the, the organizations you describe charlotte is if we want to go into universities or to colleges or to learning centres, straight away there's an insistence that the course runs for a particular amount of time, mm -hmm. that it's got some kind of backing, that it's got course fees, that it's got support, <laughs> that it's got all these logistical and resource-based requirements mm -hmm. that put people off ever getting there. So what if we took all that away and the course creation was free? And that, and if you design that work yourself, if you created the pages, if you created the resources, the mm -hmm. spread, the, the, the presentations, the videos, the photographs, the conversation space, if you made all that and then gave it away and you just gave it to the people you wanted to converse with, 
I think that takes us back to a different age you said before about pedagogy is timeless, I agree. And mm. this is also tapping into that, or at least recognising that, that we have a, an innate desire to learn. Mm. And that is different than wanting to go and learn a subject. Yeah. You know, you know it, it, it reminds me that we've been, we've been trying on and off here and there to start a pedagogy course up the street from um, Charlotte. There's Tufts university and they have something called an experimental college we initially thought that would be a great home for it and and indeed we sent a proposal to them and they liked it but they didn't accept it because they didn't think it was sufficiently different from some of the other things that they had on offer and so then we tried again and that time we didn't hear back so in between all this we just thought why don't we just run it online but i think one of the key things that maybe we always need to remind ourselves of in the pure project which is right there at the heart of what you said today is you need an existing community that needs to learn something together. It reminds me a lot of a, a guest we had on one of our earlier series of discussions. Do you remember Willow Brew, Charlotte, who came along? Yeah, and said, yeah, you know, with the blue hair. That's where I got my yeah. blue hair. There we go, yeah. Yeah, so she said, uh, you know, people think about going and starting a community, but they forget they're already part of a community. So yeah. next time you think about starting a community, just look around and think about the community yeah. that you're yeah. already there with. Well, I was just, just an aside, I was just talking, I set up a, another podcast about, this uh, institute at my rowing club, uh, they're starting an institute for rowing leadership. And I said, you know what, they're relaunching it. And I said, what, what are you trying to do differently this time? And they're trying to attract a more diverse group of people because rowing is very white and it has an elitist sort of background, uh, you know, connotation to it. But, uh, you know, a lot of it is, is the cost. I mean, you have to come to Boston for a year and learn this. I mean, a lot, and a lot of it is on, you know, is in real time. You have to go on a boat, you have to learn how to, you know, coach and stuff, but there is a component that is just, you know, interacting with the other course, you know, so they're trying to figure out how to make that happen so that more diverse kinds of coaches can participate and grow the sport. So, yeah. And, and that and in that shall that very example it's like that slow that's how learning takes place in, in slow mm -hmm. burn you don't necessarily need all right and now i've got the resources for 12 months in boston and uh, all that goes with that actually what i need is an hour a week to just listen to some other people talk about their experiences and mm -hmm. now do you know what i really love this so next week i'm going to go because i'm running a little course i'm going to go do that so an hour a night i'm going to go and you build up mm -hmm. into these places and and because i mean i don't want to get involved in this argument right now but like if we commodify education to the point that what comes first is the cost and the ability to pay for it straight away then we cut that off do you know we we're all, we're immediately saying that only mm -hmm. those that it straight away are in i think david's here yeah yeah ah, amazing david it's, it's so cool to see you david hi gonna, everyone i'm, I'm so I sorry gotta, i'm late that's okay half of the podcast left maybe we should just do this as a kind of a parallel <laughs> yeah. format you were having technical difficulties <laughs> No, I, I wish I was. I was having cultural and 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 institutional crisis <laughs> management issues, but I was kind of uh, hoping that by joining it about twenty minutes after the hour, that maybe you all had solved every problem we have, and I could yeah, we have. Sorry, yeah, no problem. <laughs> so not maybe not maybe not quite, but uh, it's great to have you here. Um, 
yeah, we and maybe now is a good time after after discussing these things to go into some of these these talking points, which uh, largely are derived from from questions you shared with us. So, first of all, David uh, focuses on open source learning, and I think sharing some questions with us is a great way to do that in a very paraphrased way. But is that is that so? Uh, to, just as a way to introduce yourself and your work, can you explain what is open source learning in in a common sense way for people to understand? Just Char, like let me just jump in. That. I'm yep. going to take myself okay. off so that okay. you guys Charlotte, hope you, so that yeah. I won't clip okay. off the come, bottom with the banners. Come, up, come back in the end, then we can all yes, have a panel discussion. Yes, sir. That'd be great. Okay. All right. So Charlotte's gone, but David's here. Uh, so tell us a bit more about open source learning, which you do. There he is. Sure. Well, thanks, Joe. And and it, it has been a long time. It's really lovely to see you again, and, and I'm so glad that you're all doing this. Um, so my life sort of went interestingly in terms of career path. I started as a management consultant in Southern California in Los Angeles. Um, I taught for 11 years at UCLA. And shortly after 9-11, I found myself working with some nonprofits and then with the Los Angeles Unified School District. And I began teaching high school English classes, um, not so much because of a particular acumen for English, but more because when you teach English, you can really teach anything as long as you're communicating in English. And what I realized was that my graduate students and my private sector clients who had been telling me that they had to recover from their formal education just to survive in life and thrive in a career were not exaggerating. You know, I think every generation has its issues with education and with schooling, but things had moved in ways that I was not aware of, even though I was in the knowledge transfer business professionally. And I started constructively breaking things. So using the public internet, uh, building in collaboration tools and amplification tools that would allow and empower learners to be more active in their process and connect with the experts that had the knowledge and the experience they needed. And in so doing, uh, you know, now more than ever, educators who don't do the lockstep uh, order following protocol have to have something a theoretical framework, a term to art, because there's at least going to be curiosity, if not criticism, if not outright, uh, you know, sabotage. So I dubbed what I did open source learning, not for the purpose of commodifying it, but for the purpose of giving it a shape and a container, built out a theoretical framework over time, and essentially ever since have been playing Johnny Appleseed, working with educators who do wonderful things all over the place, and this sort of acts as the sriracha of learning. Anybody who practices the same sorts of values that inform pedagogy, for example, or project-based learning, or a dozen other uh, you know, ways of doing this, but who come to this from a place of preserving a learner's sovereign identity, supporting the learner's ability to create, curate, manage, and sometimes destroy their own data, and create their own value in the process. Um, this is a, a much longer rabbit hole to follow, but the term open source learning came from both open source software development and forking and cloning, but also thermodynamics in the sense that whereas once classrooms were siloed and private, now in an open source learning network, even if a classroom is formally designed in ways that are, um, pedantic and restrictive, an independent learner can still take that course and share out through the internet and create a network 
and so on and so on. So I hope somewhere in that I answered your question. I, I think I, I think I've got a feel for it. It certainly allows me to ask one question, which I think applies to all of us. And this is this is not on the slides, but it's there's these different ways to blend things like pureagogy or things like open source learning or things like uh, community open online courses with formal learning. You know, uh, uh, the three of us are employed at institutions of of learning. Um, so and uh, written, you know, we can write books. I think you have a book out uh, as well uh, about this, uh, David, and or you can write a PhD dissertation as Peter, Peter and I have done. Um, but, you know, you're just mentioning in your little intro, there's a bit of a culture clash, isn't there, uh, in terms of open source learning or community, anything. Um, I wonder if both of you could say a little bit about that culture clash and how you've responded to to it. Or if you agree, is there a culture clash? Well, I'm wondering if I can if I can piggyback just a little bit before Peter answers, because I saw a question from my dear friend Brian Alexander pop up while you were talking. Great. Let's and, and he was asking about the cultural uh, skepticism about digital technology. I think this is the misguided conversation. You know, you ask me, what does it mean to be an educated global citizen? Open source learning looks at the things that school ostensibly should be supporting and most often doesn't. Mental fitness, how well do we concentrate? How well do we manage our emotions? How well do we remember things or comprehend them? Physical fitness, how well are we managing us? Civic fitness, spiritual fitness and technical fitness. Technical fitness, technology itself, uh, I'm a word geek. It comes from the ancient Greek techni, which doesn't mean tools. It means the cleverness and the purposeful use of tools. And you don't need a computer to do open source learning or pedagogy for that matter. Uh, I'll take a stick and some dirt, but really all I need is a learner. And I think that we've gone too far afield into these sort of horse race dichotomous debates about face-to-face hmm. -face versus virtual and we get lost in the weeds when really, you know, I'm looking at my own children when I think these things, what we're trying to do is create the habits of mind and the practices in life that support learning, which is something we all do very naturally as homo sapiens, to support the kinds of outcomes we need in the face of an increasingly complex and uncertain future. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, that resonates, even though you weren't, you weren't here at the, at the time, at least in my mind, it resonates with uh, something that Peter was talking about, about when you go to an institution of higher learning, for example, there's all this paraphernalia you need. You need to have a, three years to write your PhD or eight years if it's in the U.S. or something like that, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas people, as you said, learn naturally without making those kinds of commitments or outlays at the outset. So, um, Peter, do you want to come back to what David just said or, or, or think a bit more about culture clashes? Uh, I, I, I love what David said, and I, and I also I think about responding to uh, to Brian's question as well. Mm. That, that there is a culture class in pedagogy and, and things like Cooks and, and Dave's work is you need to establish a space that is not. That, I don't want to turn this into um, that you know the the good bad, uh, you know the, the the evil. But another Greek word, and this is how you, this is how I use this. I teach in formal education, and I teach a technology project module. And it relates to Cooks, and I think it relates to what Dave's angle there was. Is And the Greek word that we use in that that's often missed is phronesis. So that's what the purpose, what's the good, what's your reason for doing the work that you're doing? And so 
rather than just looking at technology and saying, right, we're going to achieve this qualification as if that in itself is enough. Mm. What's that, what is the learning that was within that qualification? What is the, the good? What is the action that your work is involved with in the community that you work in? So like when you leave this college, when you're involved in this college, you're, you're a trainee teacher. I know I've got Ryan and a few other people now in a room just watching this and and, you know, training to be teachers. So what do we do that for? Is it just for the money? Is it for status? Is it for respect? Is it for any of those things? Or is it to change the world that we're in? And that that's on so many different levels. We don't all have to work in formal education to do that. And, that, and I think open education is the space that both recognises the, the innate desire, drive, need to teach and to learn and to share knowledge. But also it can be so manipulable in terms of size, micro communities. I keep mentioning that term because any course, college courses need a specific number of people to run when actually two people is enough really to be able to trade something to change lives, to change those two lives. Open education is the way that that can happen. I'm not living mm. in a utopia. There's a lot of things that go with this. Um, you know, I, I was uh, in terms of Virginia Eubanks, who we've had over here from Blackburn, from the States, who wrote Automating Inequality. You know, and the idea about, we've just had it here in the UK around how algorithms privileged people from a particular part, well, a wealthier part of society, and under and, and you know, dismissed people from less wealthy parts in terms of grading exams. So technology is not a utopian space. It's already possessed and known. It's already open to challenge. But it dominates the world in which we live, and we're either part of it and helping to shape it, or we leave it to somebody else and it shapes us anyway. So open education is the means by which we can get involved with each other and be involved with what technology is used for. And more importantly, I suppose, or at least as importantly, what education is for. You know, this what is very, this, yeah, I think I, I think this is this is uh, this is making me think, is there are there ways that because we're clearly a part of a quite distributed community, as David said, we we've interacted infrequently over the last uh, 10 years, I think he was part of the first uh, Pyragogy handbook. Um, and you, you yourself were there before, but you know, are, are there, are we already with Brian and Leo and some of the other people who are on the chat uh, and Charlotte and other people who are involved with the Pyragogy project and your projects who I either know or don't know, is there enough of a community or a network of communities here that we could pull together around, you know, sharing and learning more uh, from each other? Because I mean, it feels like this conversation is, is really literally just getting started. And we tend to keep it to a half an hour. But uh, how how might we go about any next steps? Is there enough here that we could we could think about what a next step might be for us? So I think this comes in two ways, Joe. And and I was really grateful to hear what Peter said about you know I, to paraphrase Douglas Rushcrop, you know, as program or be programmed. And and so someone is telling our story online. It may as well be us. Uh, who creates that digital footprint and who uses the technology. You know, for example, Web3 and crypto, a lot of people are saying, well, you know, you need badges when you have NFTs. It's not really about the hype or, or the metaverse or the whatever. It's about the, you know, I like to think of the internet as agreements between people about how we communicate and how we interact. And to come back to your question, I think that those are choices 
And this is what really drew me to Howard Reingold's work in the first place uh, when the pedagogy conversation started, uh, started with Howard. And I think that, you know, the use of convivial tools, uh, it could be the well, it could be the metaverse, it could be uh, two cans and a string, depends on our desire to share information. And to the idea of formal education, if I get on an airplane or if I go in for surgery, I do want to know that my professional service provider has passed some objective metric of expertise and I'm not the guinea pig. At the same time, there are many different creative ways of validating knowledge that we just never had before. So, you know, in the 80s, when one gig cost $300,000, uh, multiple choice and Scantron exams made a lot of sense to administer to a lot of people. And it was a very efficient model for surface level evaluation. But we're not getting that second axis. We don't have the why of the what was answered on the test. And so in my way of thinking about this, can you have badges? Sure. Can you have NFTs? Sure. Are there, you know, when I had a student who wanted to learn to fly an airplane, and I see Brian's comment again, uh, high school had nothing for him. So when I introduced him to a pilot, and three months after that conversation, I found myself in the back seat of a Piper TriPacer, 3,000 feet above the school where we had the first conversation, the only way to document that properly was through video images and still photography and narrative and mm. couple that with his pre-flight inspection and his career path. And by the way, that also led him to be valuable in marketplace terms so that people who didn't know him and weren't privy to those moments, you know, when I was a student, I wrote an essay, right? And that would be for an audience of one. The teacher would make a, a few nasty comments about how my theme could have been more clearly articulated and give me a C or whatever. And then I'd promptly value that by crumpling it up in the bottom of my backpack and eventually it'd be lost to history. Well, now we can longitudinally see how people develop. And by lowering the boundaries between individuals and organizations, we can encourage that breadth of information flow that makes us all better. And to your question, I think part of that is networks like this. Part of that is eventually using semantic software more thoughtfully. Part of that is picking up the phone and calling a friend or sending a letter because the, we haven't really talked about this, but the isolation and loneliness factor worldwide right now is crippling. I, and I believe, Peter, don't you have a minister of loneliness? Doesn't the yeah, UK have yeah, a Yeah, that rings a bell. I don't know who that is. They just sit in a room on their own. <laughs> nobody, nobody speaks to them. Yeah. We'll find that person. They're probably sitting in the room sad. Yeah. Uh, Peter, any next steps in Charlotte? Another immediate next step would be great to have you back uh, if you're having a chance to sit and listen and reflect. But why don't we go to Peter for uh, some some thoughts about next steps? Um, uh, if you have any, if you have any. Uh, okay. Yeah. Next, I think, well, yeah. next steps are important, but next steps don't need to be um, about growth in in the, the hmm. usual terms. I would say I've I read something on the on the comments that kept coming up, and it and it was around about the role of the teacher and the role of student and how people are incentivized. And I think there is a real danger that we see what education is in one model only. 
And maybe you just teach one thing and then your incentive is you're a passion drive for that moment. Mm. It doesn't need to be career choice all the time. It, there, are, there are careers. I, I remember, I don't know who came up with this quote, but it was that it's, that it's well used. So that any teacher that can be replaced by a computer should be. And there's the, the idea in terms of how we use technology is it's as open as what what technology what groups what do we mean by teacher what do we mean by student all these things can be fluid and open and i'm not disappearing down rabbit holes here i'm saying it there is no desire we don't need to be the body that standardizes and drifts toward the center because the center is already doing that there are enough forces drifting towards a standardized center The idea of having multiple different voices in different places doing different things with different technologies, absolutely fine. And it's about being able to respect that people do things differently rather than saying only the thing that's got 600,000 users is worth having. And then even that is nascent. And it's going to be 6 million within a year to be, you know, of growth. Then it's going to be 60 million at any other point to be profitable. We can't think in terms of that. If five people are using technology in a particular way and there are organisations, networks, like are coming together about this moment, where we can support each other and show that (laughs) these things uh, are working together. (laughs) I love it. You know, Peter, you touched on something that I want to pick up on. I want to amplify your point. Yeah, go Uh, on. Thinking in terms of differences rather than deficiencies might be the single most important thing we can do for learners at every level right now. Mm. Because whether it's the Zooms and Proctorios of the world showing algorithmic bias and downgrading an individual because of their skin color or the ambient noise in their uh, living quarters when they're trying to participate, or whether it's thinking about, you know, earlier the question came up about social justice. And I, I do want to key on this because we talk about cultural proficiency and interpersonal interactions on campus, or maybe even leveling the playing field in terms of hierarchical authorities between learners and educators. But we have some systemic issues that when you say about the 600,000 user limit, you take an LMS like Canvas, for example, which is a brand of infrastructure holdings out of Utah. Well, they were taken private in March, 2020, by an equity firm for $2 billion. And then there was an IPO less than 12 months later for 2.9 billion. They said it was for expansion. Really, it was debt service. All the private equity people are still on the board. And now they're valued at 3.95 billion. Now, I understand that there's a lot of data being exchanged during the pandemic, but that doesn't explain that valuation when you look at the few thousand dollars that they charge school districts and the few hundred dollars per head. So it's really about data. And when people don't have a choice about which platform they have to use because someone in procurement in the business arm of an institution bought the software, what we really have is an entire generation of intellectual sharecroppers. Mm -hmm. And there's no part pregnant here. We're either talking about value contribution or value extraction. So when it comes to the software side of things, I wanted to ring in on this because you nailed it. And I really think that it deserves to be amplified, not just in terms of which technologies we adopt, but also the simple fact of the matter is anyone who talks about seat time or academic rigor is someone who won the zoo and now runs the zoo. 
And what I mean by that is that most of the people in charge of making decisions in education institutions were pretty good themselves at playing the game. And so it worked for them. Most of our students today, it doesn't work for them. And people who look at the pandemic and campus closures and think, oh, well, this is a momentary crisis and we had to respond. Nope, that's not the thing. We have so much economic food and housing insecurity. We have the next variant, the next pandemic, the next extreme environmental incident. We need more resilience in all forms of learning. And school was a great start. But for us to think that's the end all be all would be one of the absolute crimes against the next generation. Well, now I'm off my uh, Reserved. Thank it. you. That that was that was a nice amplification and, and some great points in there. I'm really glad Charlotte brought uh, Leo's comment up here because it's a good question for I think all of us, um, including the uh, Charlotte and Joe. Uh, we might have to ponder this as well. Um, but mm -hmm. yeah, uh, it sounds good. It sounds good. I wish I was. In, I wish I had been in your classroom. Literally, both of you actually at any point in my life. And 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 at the same time, you know, I I I I am not sure I feel the same thing about my own classroom. I, I I'm not sure I'm actually able to do, be my best person when I'm on the job in formal education. You know, so how. How could we be our best selves, first of all, and then in terms of, you know, sharing what we love doing? Mm -hmm. And then the question, you know, how can we have the next uh, Charlotte and Peter and David come along out of the ranks of teachers or students and, and do even better than we, than we did? Any, any thoughts about Just that? to add yeah. on to that, I remember when David was, you know, talking about that uh, contribution of his to the to the uh, previous pedagogy handbook um, and hearing about all the pushback from the educational system. I mean, this, it seems like there's a, oh, it's real, it's scary and risky for our teachers out there to get involved in something that they don't understand or that, you know, is not being provided to them. Is that, valid point? Well, you know, early on, and I think I had the benefit of, of being a mid-career professional when I started teaching K-12 mm -hmm. courses. Um, but I think that the the real risk is is the death we die inside before we stop living. I, you know, we, we just had, what, four point something million Americans leave their jobs. And I think it's something, it's, the numbers are something like 50% of all first year teachers left. Mm -hmm. Uh, and the numbers over the last few decades weren't much better. If that's the worst thing that can happen, that you find yourself a different job, I know it's traumatic. I know that we're all hanging on by threads to senses of normalcy and health and sustenance for our families. But the nature of integrity isn't honesty. It's integrating our thinking with what we say and what we do. The fact that there hasn't been an absolute you know, I, I don't know how to say this gently. I, I really believe in empathy and kindness and compassion. Mm -hmm. But when I see the vitriol and the venom with which people show up on campus demanding that their maskless kid be able to do whatever they want at the potential health risk of a 60-year-old teacher with autoimmune, um, nope, I'm out. So the answer to your question, Charlotte, is the tough answer. I think people have to do what they believe. I respect mightily the First Amendment, not just because of the ability to improve and increase communication, but also because it lets me know where the trouble spots are. Mm -hmm. And and I, you know, it may be an unpopular thing to come out as an educator and say, yeah, I believe in nonviolent communication and restorative dialogue, and I can do all of that all day long. But there, at the end of the day, 
are some handrails for how we do this business of interacting with younger human beings and how we promote learning and critical thinking. Yeah. Anybody who wasn't political in the last American administration, I think was derelict in their duty. True. It got quiet, didn't it? Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're all what do you think? Some nice juicy concepts to, to, to think about. Here. I was learning to love my my mute button. I think uh, I would I would love to have uh, any further comments uh, to 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 Peter because or from Peter because I guess you are also teaching teachers, right? So you know you do you, what kind of uh, what's that like basically? And then I think at that point we have to go to Charlotte for the closing down ceremony after that yeah yeah I, well again i i will keep echoing there but i think we're coming from a very similar place and teaching teachers has its frustrations but it doesn't in some ways i look in a room like i've been tonight and you see people who are going to be brilliant with other people but then you look at the systems that they've got to operate within and then you do feel a shudder of fear so what do you do you feel, like i can't i don't want to teach that system so i don't i could because i think in some ways i think people think i possibly am but i'm not I, you know, my, my idea is that like what what can you be yourselves how can we be and i do this with education studies it's the whole idea where coops came from people who have never taught anything are in no institution at all just the encouragement to say share this do you know be with this and it's and it's that idea that we are we we specialize and compartmentalize and we reduce you know that the idea is that you know i there's a populist argument like the, we're sick of ed, experts. This is not about expertise. Expertise has its place, but we can't make everyone who's not an expert an idiot. Do you know? And mm. the, the idea of teaching and learning and what knowledge is is so fluid that nobody knows the answers now. Mm. And, and there was a question that came up about incentivizing, and I get this because I've had this all the time about the Coops project. Why mm. would people do this? Like, you know, at what point do they stop? The point that they don't want to do it anymore and there are things like if they look at the world we were in dave mentioned this right at the top of his of his introduction the world that we are in if you if you have a solution to to something like saving energy or making a better planet the, the idea that you would need to be paid to share that with people is kind of abhorrent isn't it you know if, <laughs> if we've got little bits of things that we can do to save the planet that we live on then we should be doing that. If we can do a little bit of something that makes people's lives a little better, share that. This isn't about grand philosophies necessarily, although that might be the thing that people want to come together and learn around. But it's about the idea that learning is for everyone and it should be traded. It should be, it should, I'm not, not necessarily free, but it's a tradable concept. It doesn't have to be specialized, put in buildings that you need a certain set of criteria to come into. And that that's guided by somebody else who doesn't even live there. You know, and there are policies that set that and there are individuals in alien spaces that set who can enter that building. All of that is disastrous really for community and we can use education to build our communities small i don't think we need that like i said earlier we don't need the 60,600 million. we don't need those sizes we just need to come out to compose a network of people like ourselves like other people that we know and and encourage people yeah keep going keep doing it mm. and so teaching that, that, is hard because you're no. going to find that amongst the system i would yeah. i would I would season that lightly. I, I would agree with that. And I would add to it that the benefit of helping to grow, you know, there's a natural parallel metaphor in my mind between 
the ways that learning expresses itself, the invisible becomes manifest, and the ways in which we think about data. You know, we're looking at images on a screen right now of faces, but they're not really faces, they're pixels. They're not <laughs> pixels, they're ones and zeros. And those ones and zeros, even if you, you know, if people know markdown language, for example, well, that markdown language could be a Word document, it could be a slide, it could be a meme, it could be any one of a number of manifestations. And so it is with learning. You can have a wonderful expression of learning as an undersea welder or as an essayist. And Peter made a very important point. The only place that we divide this rich experience of living into subject by subject thought patterns, hour by hour, this hour you'll think in chemistry, that hour you'll think in Spanish, is in school. Mm -hmm. Everything is naturally interdisciplinary. And when we think about the Medici effect, we think about the interdisciplinary benefits of, again, integrity, right? Of integrating that. Again, that's part of open source learning. Learners drive the process by identifying anything in their lives that they want to learn more about. Because any single one of those top, show me a cup of tea. You've got ceramics, fluid mechanics, botany, the history of colonialism. We can build that out into all sorts of meaning, some of which may connect to your course credit and your progress toward graduation and your formal certifications. Some of it might be beyond what the curriculum could provide. Some of it might be something I've not yet imagined, which would be the happiest surprise of all. And to that end, when you say about it doesn't have to be a large scale community, I would agree with that. But I also suggest that we grow the capacity in every single learner to feel an awareness that there's somebody out there that shares a passion, that has an expertise that might be worth beginning a relationship through which they can accelerate and amplify their process. So that, that's a great, both comments uh, from uh, Peter and then David uh, would be great introductions to what we're about to do next, uh, opening up the room, so to speak. Uh, and if you join us on the URL on the screen, <clears throat> meet.jit.c slash Piragaji, uh, hopefully all of us will be there. That's kind of the after party from the podcast. So we try to keep these things uh, brief, but there's been so many amazing uh, things yeah. to, to, to share today and really great comments from um, guests uh, via YouTube. I mean, extra guests on, online watching this live. So I hope some people will uh, make the jump over to meet.jit.c for a further uh, slash Piragaji for a further, further discussion. Any uh, closing comments, Charlotte? Um, no, I'm um, just... We try and do a project action re review mm. after each one during that uh, after party, and uh, there will be cocktails. So, you know, <laughs> um, no, I th I'm just so happy that we got so many people uh, participating live. It's like our most ever. And I think that says a lot about our guests and the topic and the, what's on people's minds. So thank you all so much. Um, this has been a yep. pleasure. Yeah. Really great conversation, and I will definitely be re-watching it, um, and I hope others will be listening in. And I'll see you all, I hope, on the uh, meet.jit.c slash Piragaji link we showed up on the screen. Okay, bye Yeah, I now. think if piragaji.org has that link if your brain is spinning mm. like mine. So mm. yeah, <laughs> thank you so much. And now we do our Thanks. Saturday Night Live sort of end thing.